0: Well, let's return to John chapter 12. It's been a long time. At long last we are back in the Gospel of John this morning. John chapter 12. <clears throat> in John 12, Jesus has ridden his donkey up the Jerusalem's gates and forced the capital city to a verdict concerning his Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah said a king would come on a donkey. Well, the Jewish leadership has rejected him. But suddenly, certain Greeks come seeking Jesus. And we don't know the outcome of their search. That's not the point. Rather, the coming of the Greeks signals a dramatic shift in John's Gospel. Jesus responded to the inquiry by shifting the tense of a verb concerning the hour of the Son of Man's coming and His glorification. Up to this point in John's Gospel, we have heard predictions of a future hour when Jesus will manifest His glory. But suddenly in verse 23, Jesus declares the hour of, Has come. But how can this be? Jesus has yet to go to his cross. Well, somehow the hour of Jesus' glorification is organically connected with his death. Jesus says in verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And that's as far as we made it. We come now to verses 27 through 36, a section which is as theologically dense as any part of John's gospel. Let's take a stab at these verses this morning. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Well, let's summarize what we just read. First of all, Jesus makes a further reference to this hour, the hour of his glorification. Second, a voice out of heaven speaks of the glorification of Jesus. Third, Jesus promises to overthrow the ruler of this world. Fourth, Jesus speaks of his death, but it's no ordinary death. It's an exalted death in which he is lifted up to draw people to himself. And finally, these statements provoke further consternation and controversy with the Jews. You know, we can't possibly work through all that this morning, but let's take a look at the first three topics the hour. The voice and the judgment. And we'll give brief attention to the first since that's what we left off with last time. Back in verse 23, Jesus declared, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It was coming all the way along in John, and now the hour has come. But what is the nature of that hour? Well, Jesus says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. The hour of his glorification is the hour of his soul's great distress. And Jesus' distress was so great that he pondered in verse 27 whether he should request, Father, save me from this hour. Now the hour, as we discovered previously, was the hour of his final triumph on the cross and, of course, his subsequent resurrection. But Jesus' path to glorification must come through a horrible crucifixion on a Roman instrument of torture. When Jesus says, My soul is troubled, the verb is a strong verb signifying revulsion, even horror at the thought of a death on a cross. Cicero describes crucifixion as, quote, the most cruel and disgusting punishment. When Jesus came to dark Gethsemane a couple days later, under enormous pressure, he pondered whether God might take the cup of suffering from him. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will be done. And here in our text, as also in Gethsemane, Jesus ponders the dreadful hour of his cross. And then he resigns himself perfectly to the Father's will. Notice how in verse 27 and verse 28, Jesus is suddenly filled with resolve. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name even through my death in this painful hour. Now friends, these moments of hesitation followed by resolve do not call into question Jesus a deity, as if he momentarily questioned God's sovereign disposition, dispos- dispositions for his life or sinfully doubted God's will. Not at all. Rather, these moments offer us a glimpse into his true humanity Jesus voluntarily submitted Himself to human weakness and suffering and even ignorance about the entirety of God's will for the future. And as a human, He was understandably horrified, utterly horrified by the future prospect of death on a cross. In the Incarnation, Jesus never ceased to be God, but Jesus was entirely human. Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to God's will. And he limited the independent exercise of his divine attributes in submission to the Father's will so that he could truly sympathize with our humanity. So that he could look at a cross and feel the same kind of revulsion that we would feel. So again, these moments of reservation and deep despair they do not call into the question his deity, but they truly reveal his human nature to us. Jesus experienced genuine human terror at the hour of his death. So friends, that's the hour. And now let's consider the voice. In verse 28, a heavenly voice rang out in divine approval of Jesus' wish to glorify the Father's name. Look at the text. Then came a voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Question for you Is that voice rather startling in the text? Did you expect it? When is the last time you heard a voice like that out of heaven? Well, verse 29 suggests the crowd was unaccustomed to hearing a voice out of heaven. They were unprepared to really process the event. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. But they said an angel had spoken to him, like, What is this? It was totally unexpected. They were confused. So, what is the meaning of his voice, and why is it confusing the people? Now, here's another question. How often do you hear the voice of God out of heaven in the Old Testament? And how often have we heard it in the Gospels? How often have we heard it so far in John's Gospel? Let's take some time and really explore this because it will really help us appreciate this voice. When reading to the Old Testament, you constantly hear the voice of God. God's voice is just so ubiquitous, you never stop to ask, well, where would that come from? The voice is just there. No one sits around and debates, well, was that an angel? Was that thunder? What exactly was that? But here in John 12 and verse 20, it's rather startling. Like, where would that come from? What is that? In the Old Testament, God speaks. And he speaks to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to Hannah, to Gideon, to David, Isaiah, to Jeremiah, and many, many others. God speaks to prophets and the priests and the kings. He just keeps on talking to people. Listen to several passages. Genesis 15 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram. 1 Samuel fifteen ten, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. 2 Samuel fifteen ten, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Second Samuel 24, 11, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. 1 Kings 6.11, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. First Kings 16, 1 Kings 16:1, the word of the Lord came to Jehu. First Kings 18, 1 Kings 18:1, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. 2 Chronicles eleven verse 2, the word of the Lord came to Shemiah. Isaiah 38 verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Jeremiah 1 verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It's just so, so common all through the Old Testament. In fact, these statements are so commonplace, you never stop to ask, Well, where'd that voice come from? It's just there. And would you listen to the first chapter of Genesis? God said, Let there be light. God said, Let there be an expanse. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of heaven. God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. God said, let us make man in our own image. It's just there. That voice is just ever-present in the Old Testament. In fact, all of Genesis 1 is nothing more than a recording of the voice of God. And that voice forms the entire visible universe that we interact with every day of our lives. Think of that. Everything that science has ever discovered has been the voice of God. Everything. God speaks, and billions of galaxies ignite across the vast expanse of heaven. Colossal mountain ranges are scraped up from the continents. Ocean chasms fill with water. Trillions of electrons commence their whirling about their neutrons. God speaks, and it all comes to be. Would you think about all the life out there in nature? God speaks, and the lungs of animals expand with air, and they go thundering and hopping and slithering across the African plain. God speaks, and whales plunge to the depths of the ocean. God speaks, and drought disappears under cascades of rejuvenating rain. God speaks, and the roots of mountains grind across tectonic plates, sending molten lava spewing up into the blue expanse of heaven. God speaks, and the moon circles the earth, and the earth spins around the sun. The sun hurtles through space, and our whole galaxy is revolving out there like a great big pinwheel. It's all the voice of God speaking. All creation is the Logos. The speech of God. And that means, friends, as I pointed out at the beginning of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, that God's speech is not merely the printed words in our Bibles. We call that special revelation. But God's speech is more than that. All nature, from the mighty sequoias to the tiny little ants, is the speech of God the Word, the revelation, the Logos of God. And if you listen to Psalm 19 and verse 2, there is an indissoluble union between God's revelation, His speech, and creation. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It's all the voice of God. The voice of God permeates the Old Testament like salt pervades the oceans, And the voice of God permeates all of creation. But isn't it curious how the voice of God out of heaven just suddenly, almost entirely disappears when you turn a page and come to the New Testament? Like, where's the voice? Where's the voice? Did you know that in all four Gospels you hear the voice... Three times. Three times, that's it. Three times. And one of those three is right here in John 12 and verse 28. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And it's really startling. Like, where would that come from? You've been so used to not hearing it, it's like, where would that come from? And friends, how on earth has God been glorifying his name when his voice is almost silent in the Gospels? Like, How is that even possible? Has God been glorifying himself through silence? Well, the answer becomes crystal clear when we listen to the voice out of heaven the other two times that it speaks. And we discovered both of those times when we were working through Matthew's gospel. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended from heaven and landed on him. And a voice from heaven thundered, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then silence. We heard the voice a second time on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it gave precisely the same message with a slight addendum. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then what? Listen to Him. And then silence. You go looking for the word of the Lord came to Samuel, Nathan, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, or even the apostles in the Gospels. You won't find it. If you have listened to the voice of Yahweh for a millennia and you want to hear more of that voice, well then listen to the voice of Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Yahweh has nothing to add and nothing to subtract from the voice of Jesus. What that means is that if you're in a conversation with Jesus, it would be inappropriate to say, well, let's consult the Father on that. No, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. How many times have you been in a conversation with multiple people and someone relates a story that involves you? And along the way, you have those little bits and pieces of the story that you want to interject. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, she left that part out. Oh, no, no, that's not exactly how it happened. There's more to the story than that. Oh, that's not quite how I saw it. Wait, 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 wait. It can be really frustrating. We do that all the time. Sometimes it really drives us bonkers to listen to somebody else tell the story involving us. Right? Well, that never, ever happens between Jesus and the Father. Never. When Jesus speaks, he speaks the exact words of God without a syllable of difference. Why? Well, recall how John's Gospel began. The Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. That voice that rang through all the Old Testament has become flesh. John 1, verse 14. The Logos became flesh. The Logos that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And guess what? We have seen His glory. What glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen the very glory of God in the face of Jesus. What are we looking at when we see the incarnation? The glory of the Son from the Father. What are we hearing when we hear Jesus speak? We're hearing the glory of the Logos, the Word of God. Jesus is is the very glory of God. Jesus is the very presence of God among us. So friends, let all of that inform how you interpret this voice that suddenly rings out of heaven. The voice in verse 28 responds, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Well, what has God been up to since we have been working line by line by line right through the ministry of Jesus and John's Gospel? Friends, everything that Jesus has done, everything that he has said up to this point has been a matter of him glorifying the name of the Father. Verse 28 doesn't refer to a single event. It refers to everything about the life of Jesus. It's all the revelation of God's glory. I have glorified my name. That's what I've been up to. God has been constantly glorifying His name, revealing His name through Jesus Christ. That's what that voice means. I have glorified it. But don't stop listening to the voice of Jesus. Don't stop observing his life. He's going to go to a cruel death, the death of a common criminal. Don't stop listening to him. Don't stop observing him. Why? Because God is going to glorify his name again. He's going to go right on doing this through to the bitter end of Jesus' life. Right to the moment of his cruel death, God is going to glorify his name again. And again, and again, that's what the again is all about. God is going to go on glorifying his name. This is my beloved son. Now listen to him. Now, John, of course, gives us a record of this voice that thundered out of heaven as he sits down to write his gospels years later. It all makes sense to him now. But back in verse 16, we learn that in the moment... The disciples lacked understanding of what Jesus was really up to. So you have to keep that in mind when you interpret verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Well, again, there is genuine confusion about that voice that came out of heaven. Again, they weren't even expecting it. And certainly the crowd heard some sort of audible sound. But apparently they did not understand the speech that came from heaven. Some thought it was some sort of mighty peal of thunder. Others thought that Jesus received some sort of angelic communication. But now we know it was actually God speaking. It was God speaking. Now the crowd's misunderstanding, though, creates a little bit of an interpretational dilemma for us in verse 30. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Well, if the crowd couldn't understand the voice, why does Jesus say the voice has come for your sake? It came for you all, but they didn't even understand it. Why would he say that? Well, certainly Jesus at this point is not focused on the content of the voice. Right? They don't understand the content. What did it say? But certainly a voice rumbling out of heaven would indeed authenticate Jesus even if we couldn't understand the voice, right? A great big voice out of heaven, even if you couldn't understand it, would indeed authenticate Jesus. But let's also recognize that even though the voice was not immediately understood, it was eventually understood, and we know that because John just recorded it for us, John wrote about it, right? John tells us what the voice said. So at some point, that content of what the voice said must have been revealed to John, right? And so in that sense, too, the voice came for our sake because God allowed John to know what it said. He recorded it for us, and now we know, okay, that was for us. This is the Father's approval of Jesus. So all three times that that voice speaks out of heaven... It is God the Father's approval of Jesus. So listen to him. All right? So that's the voice. We looked at the hour, we looked at the voice, and now let's come to verse 31, and let's talk about the judgment. In verse 31, Jesus promises to overthrow the ruler of this world. Now is the judgment of this world now, will the ruler of this world be cast out? Well, what does that mean? We'll observe the word now. It occurs twice. And now connects verse 31 to the hour of Jesus' glorification. That's what the whole passage is about. If you look at verse 27, you'll notice the word now at the beginning of the verse. And then two references to Jesus' hour. The now is a reference to the hour that has now arrived. In verse 23, Jesus said, The hour of the Son of Man's glorification has come. That's what the passage is about. So that hour, according to verse 31, that hour that has now come involves the judgment of this world But then Jesus really narrows that down specifically to say this, the ruler of this world will be cast out. The judgment of Satan has now come. Now we've established that the hour of Jesus' glorification points to his cross and, of course, his subsequent triumph. So at the cross, Jesus will judge Satan. He will cast out the ruler of this world. But what does that mean? Has Satan been cast out? If you were to be asked that by somebody this week, how would you respond? Has Satan been cast out? Well, before answering that question, let's all turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. I want us to notice a statement that might seem contradictory to what we just read. Was Satan defeated 2,000 years ago at the cross? Or is he still alive and powerful today? Do we still wrestle with Satan in the powers of darkness? Well, in Romans 16 and verse 20... Paul offers words of encouragement to suffering Roman Christians. Of course, this is after the cross of Christ when he writes. We're in the 50s AD at this point. And Paul writes, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That assurance to the church in the first century. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, those are very encouraging words, especially for Christians who are about to face the Neronian persecution. But they make it sound like Satan will be crushed in the future, at least in the perspective of these Roman Christians. He will soon be crushed. But wait a minute, I thought he was already cast out. So was Satan destroyed at the cross? Or are believers still waiting for the crushing of Satan? Can you explain this? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God foretold that the seed of the woman would crush the head of Satan. But did that happen at the cross? And if so, why does Paul refer to it happening soon rather than having already happened? Well, let's see if we can make uh, sense of this. Jesus clearly spoke In John twelve and verse thirty one, that the hour has come, and here's what he said: Now is the judgment of this world. Again, up to this point, in John's gospel, it's been, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Now is the hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rule of this world be cast out? So, friends, you you just got to put an anchor down right there. I mean, that's what Jesus said. Just. Put an anchor down, Jesus said it, the ruler of this world is cast out. Keep a finger here in Romans 16, let's go back now to John chapter 16. And let's just drop another anchor. Chronologically, John 16 records events that happened within a couple days of John 12 and verse 31. And Jesus is in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. In beginning in verse 8, Jesus explains the role of the coming Holy Spirit. We will come to these verses in due course. But here's what the Holy Spirit will do. John 16, verse 8, and when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, here's what he's going to do. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Three kinds of conviction. That's his mission And Jesus is going to clarify in verses 9 to 11 what those three areas look like. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. All right, but what is that conviction about the judgment? What's that all about? Well, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is Judged. The Spirit will convict the world of three things. One of them being judgment. But what judgment? Verse 11 The ruler of this world is judged. Quite literally, the Holy Spirit comes to convict people that Satan is judged. And when did the Spirit come? Well, he came at Pentecost. So ever since Pentecost, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us that Satan has been judged. So let me ask you this. Have you ever been convicted, like really convicted in your heart that Satan has been judged? We talk about convictions about all kinds of things. He convicted me of this sin or this sin over here, right? Have you ever been convicted that Satan is judged. Well, if not, read the text, and read it again and again and again, and let the Spirit speak. Put an anchor down there. The Holy Spirit convicts us that Satan is judged. And Paul gives us another anchor in Colossians 2. Don't turn there. But here's what Jesus. Here's what Paul said. At the cross, Jesus, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The Greek text speaks of Christ stripping away their armor, their weapons. Paul says they are undressed and rendered powerless by Christ. Likewise, Hebrews 2 and verse 14 tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had power over death, that is, the devil. The New Testament is really, really clear. Satan has been defeated by Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. We are not waiting for Satan's destruction. It's a fait accompli. And remember this, friends. When Jesus resurrected, he was declared to be the Christ, the ruler with power at the resurrection. That's Romans 1. At the resurrection, Jesus claimed all authority in heaven and on earth. He has spoiled Satan's domain. Friends, this really has to be a non-negotiable for us. We're not trying to figure this out. The New Testament is really clear. Satan has been judged. But here's where the confusion comes in. Isn't Satan still alive and active? You better believe it. Absolutely he is. But he lives on borrowed time. He has been placed on a short leash. As one of my professors who was an avid, avid hunter put it, Satan is like a heart-shot deer. He has suffered a mortal wound, but he tears off through the woods in great wrath. Friends, Satan is a roaring lion, but he's roaring over his mortal wound. That's why he's so angry. He has been mortally wounded by his conqueror. And a mortally wounded lion full of wrath is still a formidable foe. You come up against a wild animal that's dying, they are more dangerous. They are actually more dangerous, can be, than when they're not dying. Satan is still seeking people to devour, particularly Jesus' servants, because he knows that he can no longer touch his conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what the Bible says to us In the name of Jesus Christ, resist the devil and he will flee. When God commands Satan to flee, he has no choice but to flee to run away from you. Satan has been utterly defeated by Christ. And now, living on borrowed time and on a short leash, he still comes for Christians. And that's why Paul told the Romans, well, hold on, hold on. Satan will soon be crushed. God's got to yank back that leash, and he's done. Resist Satan in the midst of temptation. To hold on. Claim Christ and call on the conqueror. And when Satan sees Christ coming, he will scamper off like a pathetic coward. He has no choice. He's been destroyed So, friends, we really got to be convinced of this. Satan's power has been stripped away. The power of evil in our lives has been broken. It's been shattered by Christ. But unfortunately, many Christians don't live as if they believe it. And that's why the Spirit has to come along and really convict us. Convict us of our sin, true. Convict us of the righteousness of Jesus, and convict us that, yes, indeed, Satan has been judged. And that means you don't have to live under that sin any longer. You don't have to. You don't have to live with that addiction any longer. You don't have to slavishly follow the world and the devil any longer. You don't have to live out your fleshly identity any longer. You don't have to live in fear of all your conspiracies any longer. Just just break the habit. Quit listening to all the nonsense that just keeps you constantly fearful. Refuse to listen to voices that deny the reign of Jesus Christ. Stop listening to them. Christians often focus on physical temptation and the flesh As the domain where Satan is most active, and that's true for many, many Christians. That's true for all Christians, I should say. But for some, there's also this lifelong battle for the mind. I should say, some more than others. It's true of all of us. Satan wants you to believe that he's still out there ruling the world, and there's nothing you can do about it. He doesn't want you to believe that Christ is indeed reigning. Let the Holy Spirit convict you otherwise. That's what Matthew's Gospel is all about from beginning to end. The king has come. You better believe that. If you don't, just keep reading Matthew's Gospel. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is judged. So, what we've been talking about here is one more example of the sort of already not yet that we've seen so often in Scripture. Remember the already not yet. Already not yet. God has crushed Satan. God has delivered us. But I understand sometimes it doesn't feel that way. We are not yet completely sanctified. But what you want to remember is that the identical spirit who came on Jesus at his baptism and drove him into the wilderness of temptation, that that same spirit Romans 8 has been united with you. That same spirit So when we fail to endure temptation, it's because we are resisting in our own strength. Our humanity has not improved since Adam. But for the believer, all temptation is to be endured through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we crush temptation. In Christ, we crush Satan. If that's not happening, it's because you're doing it in your own power. Now, when you endure temptation, would you actually go back to Romans 16? Sorry, Romans 16 and verse 20. When you you endure temptation in Jesus Christ, Romans 16 and verse 20 really becomes your assurance. Hang on. Just hold on. Keep resisting. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Don't give up. The line has already been mortally wounded, and Christ is on your side, so just hold on. He's going to crush Satan. Far too often, I'm afraid that well meaning Christians just view Satan's defeat as some sort of exclusively future event. And I realize it's a future judgment for Satan. But they live in perpetual fear of their surroundings, they can't handle an election when their candidate doesn't win. They're constantly in fear of the end of the world as we know it. Everything's going to change. Much prophetic literature of the last century bred enormous fear in Christians and fostered countless theories about how the Antichrist was soon coming at Satan's behest. And friends, I used to read vast amounts of that literature, and I can tell you my theology got really skewed. It got really skewed away from Christ and from a Christological center with Him on His throne. Much of that literature views the world between the two advents of Jesus as hopelessly out of control and fatalistic moving fatalistically moving toward a global new world order and the advent of Antichrist. You know that kind of literature that I'm talking about, and you're just you're just constantly fearful and reading the newspaper, and, oh no. And in my estimation, that literature has a fundamental misunderstanding of what happened with that donkey ride. I suggested to do the donkey ride was the beginning of the whole new world order. I'm trying to be somewhat facetious, I guess. But yes, when Jesus rode his donkey into Jerusalem, everything changed. A new king showed up and was placed on a throne forever. The reality is that Jesus has already crushed Satan's head at his cross. And that's why Paul commenced his great epistle to the Romans with the insistence that Jesus was, quote, declared, it's a declaration declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Matthew's Gospel again concluded all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And I've asked you this question before, but I need to just keep on asking it. Do you believe that all authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus at His resurrection? Do you believe that, yes or no? Well, friends, do you believe that Jesus relinquishes any of that authority? Do you believe that he relinquishes that authority to Satan till his second coming? Oh, Satan, you can have my authority. Do you really think that? Don't be misled by all the theories that have as their focus the devil and his antichrist. That—that's what the devil wants you to be misled by. But he's a liar. Christ reigns. It's time to really start believing in the power of the resurrected Christ to accomplish His mission in the world. And many Christians reverse the priority sequence of Romans 16, verse 19. Look back one verse. I may come back this week, next week and give a little bit more time, all right? I don't know, but I'm really, really concerned that we get this right. Because I think there was a lot of teaching in the last 20, 30 years that kind of skewed us off center on this. But look at what Paul says. I want you, into the verse, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. That's healthy. Paul does not call Christians to preoccupy themselves with the evil in the world. And if you think that's your mission, you're naive. Now let's be careful. Paul does not deny the reality of evil in the world, he writes about it, he understood it. And elders, in particular, are commissioned by God to be aware and to guard the church against evil in the world. That is our calling, and we must do that. All right. But for the Christian, our ultimate preoccupation, our priority, our emphasis, our joy, and our delight has to be with what is good. That's wise. I want to be wise as to what is good. Understand what is good. Keep your focus on what is good and innocent as to what is evil. There are those Christians who think it's somehow their spiritual gift to discern evil, and some have more discernment than others. I understand that. But in some cases, it becomes merely an excuse to spend enormous amounts of time just obsessing over all the evil in the world and not really accomplishing much of anything for Christ's kingdom. Supposedly they have some sort of mission of informing others about what's really happening in the world as if we didn't know. But very often those same people are curiously uninformed about the advance of the gospel and curiously uninterested in making disciples and global missions. So again, be very careful. You understand what I'm saying here? We, we need to be aware of the th- currents of our age and false doctrine and what's happening in our world. All right, Elders in particular, again, we've really got to guard the church. But you can get, you, 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 you get so skewed off in that direction that you forget about Christ and Israel, and you forget about the mission of the church, you forget about the good news of the gospel. All right? The greater reality is that Jesus has already crushed Satan. And Jesus, my friends, has his own agenda for the world. So let's be precise. Satan is still alive and active. And he's a roaring lion with a mortal wound and the world is full of evil, no question. But Satan himself is on a short leash in the hand of Christ Almighty. So in the words of Romans 16, 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Let your preoccupation, your passion, your love, your joy be with the work of Christ. If you're going to read one book about what's wrong with the world, and I read those books too, all right. let me suggest you read three or Four about the history of the church, or missions, or theological commentary, what God is doing for his own glory. No matter how evil the world is, no matter how intense the opposition, we have the assurance of verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we pray, Father, we thank you for the assurance that Satan has already been beaten by your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are glad, Lord, to know the name Jesus Christ and to be on his side. And certainly, Lord, if we read the news and we look at the world, our hearts can be filled with despair and dread and uncertainty, discouragement. Lord, I pray that you help all of us to just take a a right approach to these matters and to be balanced, and to have a heart for what is good, to have a love for your church, to have a love for your gospel, to have an interest in what's happening around the world for the sake of your kingdom, to have an optimism for the future, and the success of the mustard seed that has been planted and the growth of the kingdom. And Lord, to really truly believe that Jesus Christ has all authority. We thank you that the hour of his death has already come. And we can look back on that hour and see that Satan and evil and our own flesh has been destroyed. And help us to live out that new reality, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.